I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And good morning, everyone, once again. As always, my name is Jamie Trecker. I am one of the hosts of I-94, and of course, I am joined, as I am every week at Sunday at 11 o'clock in the morning, by Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. Michael Sack. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys all doing today? Today, we are joined by the author, Jim Gower. He's joining us by phone. He is the author of Novel Explosives from Zero Gram Press. We're very excited to have him on the show. Jim, welcome to I-94. Hi, guys. How are you? <coughs> it's All great. Right. It's great to have you here, sir. Really do appreciate it. For those of you that don't know, Novel Explosives is a book that came out a couple of years ago. Um, I don't think I'm uh, giving away any secrets by saying it is a doorstop of a book. It's around <laughs> 750 pages long. Uh, it is a dense read, and we're going to get into exactly what the book is about. But, Jim, I want to talk about you, first of all, if we could, just to introduce you to our listeners. You describe yourself, uh, in some ways, as a Marxist venture capitalist uh, as your day job. And I must ask, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, obvious contradiction. And uh, yeah, well, um, so I have made uh, my living as a venture capitalist for the last three decades. Um, my um, my mother was a computer scientist and was one of the founders of one of the great uh, technology companies of the 1960s, Scientific Data Systems. So I, I grew up uh, programming and working on computers and technology and um, had this long sort of dual career as um, a computer scientist, businessman, and eventually venture capitalist while at the same time being a poet and then eventually a novelist. So um, it bit schizophrenic, but uh, in any case, in the course of that part of my life, which was dedicated to literature, I did um, a lot of reading and uh, the entire history of philosophy, but more recently, in 20th century, the sort of neo-Marxist tradition that maybe begins with Gramsci and goes on with Adorno and Horkheimer, Marcuse, and people like that, the traditionally called the New Left. <clears throat> These are mostly critiques of the ways in which um, Marx originally posited that man, the self, is economically determined, and what they extend this to is the ways in which the self is determined by the discourse or culture or systems of signification or whatever. So <clears throat> I'm probably the only venture capitalist who's sat in on a board meeting quoting Antonio Gramsci or Adorno and <laughs> having everybody look at me sort of puzzled. But uh, Sounds like a safe bet. Yeah, I, 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 yeah I'm not yeah. taking that one. There is actually a, a funny story about me quoting something that wasn't actually from Gramsci. And the board meeting stopped and everybody said, repeat that. This was a phrase that Gramsci had cribbed from Roland Roland, Roman Roland, the, the French writer, which is pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And this was, in fact, not Gramsci, but it was the motto of the communist um, newspaper uh, before Mussolini. <clears throat> Gramsci was imprisoned eventually by Mussolini and spent the last 27 years of his life in prison. So this idea of pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will was... Uh, a difficult one for him to sustain in Mussolini's presence. In any case, the board meeting stopped. Everyone said, say that again. And this all got written down. <clears throat> and about four or five years later, I start hearing everybody from motivational speakers to people like Bill Moyer using some messed up version of pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, and attributing it to Gramsci <laughs> instead of Roman Roland. So I had a pretty good idea that from that board meeting that 
quote sort of spread out with Gramsci's name attached to it. And uh, I don't know, I, I found that humorous at least. So, if you, if you yes, know. in any case, I'm uh, deeply conflicted having made mm. my living in business and, and in the, the whole machinery of capitalism while at the same time being, let's say, uh, a critic of that machinery. <clears throat> and in fact, if listeners pay attention, one of the readings that is coming up, uh, it's actually from page 288, uh, Jim actually has that quote and talks about Gramsci in Mussolini's prison. Uh, you're going to hear that coming up later on on one of our, on our readings. Is that the actual reading today? It is one of the actual readings today. It's yeah. in it, yes. We're in tune, Jim. We're yeah, in we're, tune. we're on the same wavelength here, Jim. Um, cool. Well, I hope you guys are going to read that because I don't have the book in front of me. Well, so. Jim, actually all our readings are done for us as always by Shanna Van Volt with music this week from the local Chicago Super group Dos Santos, so we will be getting uh, to that in a little beautiful. bit. Beautiful, produce, beautiful, produced reading. So I want to just follow up. Listeners obviously are, are probably, if they haven't already turned the radio off and fled, have probably figured out that this is a, a novel of big ideas, and, and we're going to be talking about a lot of those ideas. There's a lot of dense philosophy. Uh, another reviewer I, I noted uh, remarked that some passages of this book read like they came out of Jane's military goods. Uh, there are a lot of recitations of armaments and stuff like that. I, I did want to ask you before we go any further, and Jim, I know you're a California guy. One of the people that did come up in my mind, and I happen to be a, a big fan of his, is Thomas Pynchon. Uh, Thomas obviously has written a number of books that are kind of dense, layered novels that deal a lot with uh, ideas, uh, phil phil uh, excuse me, philosophies, ideas, thoughts, and go in kind of circular patterns. Your book, uh, also like Pynchon's work, has a lot of humor in it. Uh, I found many passages in the book that I thought were absolutely hysterical. There's a passage actually about uh, eating a gordita in here we're going to hear in a little bit as well. But um, I wanted to ask you, is, is there something in the California water that makes uh, people <laughs> want to write these very dense books with allusions to Wittgenstein and Gramsci and all these other things? Yeah, probably, probably. In fact, uh, Pynchon and I live not too far apart from each other in Manhattan Beach for a while. Oh, okay. uh, I was probably about 15 blocks from where he lived in Manhattan Beach. So it may be specifically the Manhattan Beach water. So, uh, well, there is that yeah. big, uh, if I remember right, there's a big fuel depot near there. It's uh, from El Segundo wafting down the, the beach, if I recall. Yeah, something. exactly. Could yeah, be the petroleum it, maybe it's uh, some sort of uh, to toxic event floating over us. I, I don't know. But yeah, Pynchon is... <clears throat> Pynchon is a, a sort of point of reference, I think, for novel explosives. I mean, I love Gravity's Rainbow, and I've read all of Pynchon. Um, I, I would say Pynchon's sense of humor is maybe slightly more slapstick than, than mine. My humor tends to be have maybe a little more of an angry edge to it. Um, and uh, at the same time, Pynchon's not at all afraid of big ideas. I don't think novel explosives is as difficult to read as Gravity's Rainbow. I, I mean, when I first read it, I was like baffled as to, I didn't even know who was in certain scenes. You know, you have unreferenced pronouns, you know, he and she, and something's going on in the in the Blitz in London, and, you know, it, it took a couple of readings and maybe some skeleton keys to, to figure out who's actually even in a scene. Um, what I tried to do with this book was um, maybe use Pynchon, but try to make it easier for the reader to be fully present to the scene. So while there's a lot of philosophy and all that, there, there's no elusiveness. I'm not referring to anything that you need in terms of philosophy I put in the book. I don't allude to others' ideas. Now, that may not make it any less baffling, but you know, I don't like the idea that people feel the book is sort of elsewhere. You know, it's, it's often... James Joyce land where if I don't know all of these literary illusions, I'm not going to get the book. You know, I try to put in there everything that 
people would need. There's an extravagant lexicon in the book, so you know a lot of people feel like they need a, a dictionary, and maybe that's useful. But I think even the way the, the extravagant lexicon is used, you can make sense of the sentences without knowing exactly what the words mean. You can get what the speech act is or the gesture without having to, you know, open the dictionary every 30 seconds. So, you know, I hope this is uh, more reader-friendly in some ways, although I love pension, so we'll just move on. <clears throat> well, I would mention, too, that I like that you we don't have to allude to anything that's uh, a big positive in my book. Even if I don't understand what the philosopher's talking about that you're talking about, at least it's there. But I wanted to go into something different. So we had three narratives uh, where the language is very unique. Uh, we had douchebag, um, and I make sure I'm saying this right, Pessoa? Yes, Fernando, Fernando Pessoa. And Fernando we had, Pessoa, uh, yeah, the great uh, modernist Portuguese poet who uh, began his great writing in about 1911 and died in 1935, just to set the historical context for Pessoa. And then Eugene and Raymond, and actually, what did I wanted? One of the questions I wanted to ask you about was concerning Raven. Um, so I was an artillery observer in the United States Army, and oh my gosh! And and your knowledge of artillery is quite phenomenal. <laughs> I guess um, I actually, you know, I, I'm a veteran. I was in the first Gulf War, and I was as I was reading this. Um, did you study? Um, uh, military manuals, or are you a veteran yourself? I was just curious because, you know, I haven't heard, you know, you were talking about individual artillery rounds that he was calling in and things like that, and it's a very um, specific. Uh, very specific mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, topic, and, you know, and I was yeah, like, so, it, I assume that's Jeremy speaking. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so Jeremy, that, you know, one of the, one of my ultimate fears was always that I was going to run into somebody that actually had been involved in artillery and they would call me out <laughs> on, on all these errors that I'd made. And, uh, you know, so, wow, that's, uh, that's really something. Well, let me say just briefly that my first job out of college, I was, I was a mathematician. My first job out of college was working at RAND, specifically at its defense analysis unit called RDA, and I built mathematical models of nuclear war and um, battles that involve Warsaw Pact troops invading Western Europe, and so I had to study weaponry, um, you know, for... Uh, you know, 12 hours a day before I got into the mathematics of trying to model these situations. So it's, I also did a lot of research, obviously, to get updated, but this, um, I, I was hanging out with a lot of people who knew weaponry really well. I mean, every single person had Jane's Defense Weekly on their desk, and these guys would sit around. They were mostly ex-military guys, mostly colonels, and, you know, they would sit around and read about new weapons, uh, you know, like it was the the newest model automobile. And uh, so I, I sort of got to know the culture, and then I did a lot of research. If you were literally a, a forward spotter in artillery, I, I, that's just an amazing coincidence. Uh, absolutely, uh, 100% 13 Fox forward observer. <laughs> wow. And, uh, okay. And, and uh, you know, it's funny because when I tell people what my job was, um, and, uh, you know, I, I talk about being a veteran not out of some, like, weird sense of nationalism or pride, but just the fact that it was a big part of my life and being a combat vet, it did have some influence on me. Um, but the reason I do talk about it is because, you know, when you get into things like that, I was reading this, I'm like, how does this guy know about, like, Wittgenstein and artillery and, like, your description of geography? Corporate finance. Yeah, finance. Pharmaceuticals. I'm like, I'm like, I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, there's so many things that you know about, but it's not like this... Um, 
it's not just like thrown together. It's like you have insane knowledge about these things. And that was one of the things in what I was going to get into after the artillery, but the, the three narratives are all individual. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, we have these insane descriptions of, you know, your world, the, the, as, as you said, the capitalist infrastructure, we have this other guy that's, you know, wandering the streets of a city under an assumed name of a famous poet. And then these two, uh, these two criminals and it's like the way it all came together i I have to say it was an amazing accomplishment and i I, and to touch on what you said earlier you are easier and more accessible than than pinching especially as more experimental works because um i I, i'll be honest i'm not a fan of pinching and um yeah and and i i need to try some more so i've only done vineland and i couldn't get through gravity's rainbow and her advice is great Oh yeah, you know, crying a lot. Forty nine. Crying a lot. Forty nine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we can we can go we can on this get into all kinds of arguments. When I, whenever anybody asks about pension, <clears throat> excuse me, I have um, a touch of laryngitis at the exact wrong time. But yeah, I usually point people to crying a lot. Forty nine because you can get that sort of paranoid fiction style without uh, having to get into the difficulties of gravity's rainbow but uh well don't get me wrong jim i love difficult books but i just never was able uh gravity's rainbow and brothers karamazov are two i've never been able to get through well yeah there's a good there's a good list that's a that's Uh, a good uh, you know i hope just before we move on from your military service that you felt in my treatment of raymond my deep respect for uh, the people, men and women, who have served. Uh, I am not a a fan, obviously, of the U.O. United States mythos of world domination via the military. And on the other hand, um, those who serve um, deserve an infinite amount of respect. And this is this is maybe partially. Um, from my awareness of what many of these people have gone through, the character of Raymond is actually based on somebody that I know who served in uh, the first Gulf War. And uh, I'll I'll leave it at that for the moment. But I, I do hope that you felt that that service and the... Uh, the way Raymond stands in the world on the next indicated action and, you know, moving forward and um, the bodily competence that he brings to to what he does are treated with respect. Oh, I believe so. And and I'm in the same boat as you. I'm not a big rah-rah patriot guy. I was like, I was a dumb kid when I was 19. I'd flunked out of college. You know, I come from the suburbs of Detroit, so it's like you go off to school, you go work in the factories. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't a factory guy, and I and at the time I wasn't. A, I, I went back and got my education later, but it got me out of town, brought me to Chicago. So I mean, it was it was uh you know it wasn't all great, but it wasn't the worst thing in the world either. So. Yeah, well, you didn't end up in the war as drug cartel, so <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Probably make a little more money than the Chicago Public Library. Probably. Well, speaking of which, we actually have a passage introducing uh, Raymond and Gene. Why don't we get to that? And as I mentioned, the readings are by Shanna Van Volt. And music this week is provided to us by Dos Santos. They're a great band. I hope you guys enjoyed this. We'll be back in about three minutes. This is a reading from Jim Gower's Novel Explosives. Raymond and Gene were getting mentally prepared to head out of Roberto's and back to the Magnum a Viper-powered variant of the Dodge Ram flatbed that sits parked at the head of an unmarked side street directly across from the double-door entrance to a reinforced concrete smoke-glass office tower. A building that even now was slowly refilling with the hard-working minions of penny-shaved SA and pauper labor ink and remorseless flows of bottom-feeder Capital Unlimited, most of whom, in turn, were getting mentally prepared to head out of Juarez and onto Guangxi where a vast pool of legals out of Vietnam and Cambodia have long ago hit bottom and are prepared to work for nothing and live on thin air. 
The accountants and number crunchers for the local maquiladoras were returning from a good long lunch in Juarez, looking a little buzzed on margaritas and camarones from Mariscos de Mazatlan, or maybe bourbon and T-bones from El Herradero, or Qingdao's and sweet and sour from restaurant Shangri-La, with their suits over their shoulders and collars suddenly unbuttoned, and their half-Windsor neckties ever so slightly askew. The next indicated action for the inventory masters was to kill an hour or two in their spreadsheet cubicles, digesting these massive meals that had cost as much in two hours as the girls on the maquila lines made in a month, before heading home to their subdivision colonials in friendly old El Paso, and their well-groomed wives and 1.8 children and their smiles all around, Honey, how was your day? Meanwhile, some 14-year-old kid in a tin-roof shack in Colonia de Anapra with six brothers and sisters and an absence of any sort of semblance of plumbing, was preparing for a shift from 4 p.m. to midnight, inserting shot key rectifiers into PCBs for power supplies that would wind up eventually, an hour or two later, in a host of enormous plasma TV screens, ideal for the recreation room of your five-bedroom duplicate of a replicant colonial. At this very minute, having swept the dirt floor and washed the dishes in a drainage ditch and hung up the laundry, she is putting on her uniform and eight straight-hour shoes, getting ready for the dusty walk from her home made of packing crates and garbage dump selvage to her bus stop in the Colonia. An easy though frequently deadly 20 minute walk where the bus will pick her up and drop her in the city center, perhaps an hour or so later, where maybe she'll find her rickety white ride to the maquilla, or maybe she'll find three strangers in an ominous black suburban. If she somehow makes it home alive, long past midnight, spelling her way along, under garbage light stars of the Barrio Cosmos, past the angel-dusted street thugs and K-hold narco ninos and buzz-bombed orphans sniffing turpentine cans, waving armalite analog river rock carbines, she'll have earned enough rapidly shrinking Mexican currency for almost a gallon of real whole milk. Or maybe a down payment on a burlap sack of pinto beans, or nearly two cans of stewed tomatoes, unless, of course, she's saving up her pay for tomorrow's 70-cent round trip to the maquila. Two of her sisters will have already left for their midnight shift at the Sylvania plant, located on Calle Fulton in the immaculate Parque Industrial A Jota Bermuda's assembly plant, where they too will work their way through the mind-deadening night of what the hell is this electronic componentry, having something to do with silicon-controlled rectifiers, having something to do with dimmers for lighting fixtures, having something to do eventually with something to do with light bulbs, which while well out of reach and abundantly scarce for a family of nine in packing crate housing, are powered by the modern miracle of pure electricity. And that was a reading from Jim Gower's novel, Explosives, uh, kind of giving you a sense of the, I guess, the milieu around Ciudad Juarez and uh, the people working, the maquiladores and the factories. Jim, can you take us through a little bit of why you actually chose to set your book in this, in this area? The book largely revolves around the USA and, and Mexico and the drug cartels, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah, well, I guess um, Juarez itself is... Um, it, particularly during the time I was writing the book, was one of the main centers of the war on drugs and was also a central place where American capitalism was um, being served by the assembly plants that put together modern electronics. I had an investment in a company, all of whose that did DSL routers, so high-speed internet connections, that actually had all of its assembly done in the Maquilas. So, um, you know, it's, it's a center for a lot of things that intersect. Um, the globalization, which has um, impoverished, among other things, something like 15 million Mexican corn growers that led to this vast migration to the north to work in the maquila plants and left because most of the maquiladoras employ primarily women because they're 
they're much more nimble at working with small parts, and I suppose because in the Mexican culture they're much much more docile, at least in theory. And in any case, it's left a sort of large pool of macho men without much employment, and this in turn fed the troops of the drug cartels that were importing drugs for consumption here in the U.S. I mean, I hope I make it clear that I don't believe Mexico is responsible for much of any of this. This is U.S. consumption. And so Juarez was... It's a frightening place. Uh, my time doing research there was, there were two truly frightening periods while I was doing research. One was doing the research on the ground in Mares and actually going to the places where all the bodies are buried, the, the death houses, as they're called. Jesus. Uh, you know, middle-class neighborhoods where the drug lords would buy up houses and use them primarily to bury bodies. You know, 42 bodies came out of one one backyard in this neighborhood that I wandered around in. And, and then going out to Colonia de Anapra, which is a vast 40,000 people barrio that's just incredibly impoverished. And... Um, so it was a a place with a a very weird energy on top of it. So there's all the the vast wealth that you can see and all of the consumerism that we pride ourselves on in in America. The impoverish impoverishment of people under global capital and the drug war being fought with a high degree of stupidity by the United States, all of these kind of converge in Juarez, and so that's where it was set. Jim, I, I have to ask, you say you were you were just wandering around this neighborhood in Juarez. Did, did you just drive over or book a ticket and head yeah. around solo, or did you have somebody accompanying you? Now, you know, the theory was... I. My wife and I went down, checked into a, a Ramada Inn or something in El Paso, and I was talking to the woman at the reception desk at the Ramada, telling her I was, you know, planning to spend some time in Juarez, and what did she recommend? And her first recommendation was stay out of there. and. Then the next recommendation, which actually gets into the book, is when you get to the other side of the Stanton Street Bridge, you should find an information booth that has maps of Juarez, because the rental car maps don't have anything on them. And uh, So drive across the bridge, stop at the information booth, and um, there may be a college student there who could help guide you around Juarez. <clears throat> so what happens in the book is uh, our venture capitalist, affectionately known as douchebag to the people who are chasing him for his sort of stupidity in wandering around Juarez, much like my stupidity in wandering <laughs> around Juarez, um, gets to the other side of the, of the Stan Street Bridge and finds uh, like an armored brigade uh, which is literally what I was faced with. Uh, I mean, machine guns, 50 caliber machine guns set up on Jeeps and uh, 50 or 60 guys waving automatic weapons. And uh, there may have been an information booth there, but I certainly didn't see it. And I was just sort of waved on into Juarez. And if you know that, the other side of the Sand Street Bridge are about seven streets that all converge there, and I was just sort of plunged into Juarez with no map, no guide, no nothing, other than that I had studied Juarez 
so much that it was probably lucky that I didn't have a map because I would have been having to stop to refer to the map. I had a sort of mental map of the of the place, and so I could recognize where I was by this sort of mental map that I had. And yeah, so <clears throat> you know, I I could find what's called the Cuernavaca subdivision, which is where the death houses are, and um, you know, the only other instruction once the woman at the Ramada had told me not to go there was don't stop at any stoplights or stop signs. You know, just keep driving because there's been a lot of kidnappings, and so yeah, I I broke a lot of laws while I was down there, but. Uh, uh, and my wife wasn't too happy about the whole research collection, but yeah. I, I made a few of these trips. Nice now vacation, mind, Jim. Excuse me? That's a nice vacation for your wife, Jim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, she was safe and sound in El Paso, oh, which, okay. by the way, is one of the lowest crime cities in the U.S. I mean, it's it's very uh, quiet and peaceful because the, yeah, their the mayor was just have no NPR. interest at all yeah. in spreading violence north of the border and right. attracting attention. Well, we have to take a quick break for our sponsors, but we're going to be back. We're speaking with uh, Jim Gower, the author of Novel Explosives. And when we come out, we're going to hear another excerpt from his book. So stick around. You're going to hear some words from the folks that make this station possible. And as always, you're listening to I-94, courtesy of WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This, of course, is Lumpen Radio. We'll be right back. <laughs> Gabrielle and I were eating homemade gorditas from an odd little shop tucked into an alley off the Calle Luis, down which we'd walked after the Theta encounter, past the one-hour photo store and the centuries-old Terreno hedge and the Teatro Juarez, and into the courtyard of the Don Quixote Museum, the Museo de Iconografía. The courtyard was in the interior of a beautiful custard-yellow two-story house with gleaming Tuscan columns and stone-quarried arches and a wood-railed mezzanine that overlooked the sculpture garden. There was a statue in the courtyard with an inscription written by Eulalio Ferrer, a man who was himself quite a colorful character, not only the collector of much of the Quixote memorabilia on display in various rooms of the museum's second floor, postage stamps and coins and wall clocks and chess sets, but one of the thousands of guests at Generalissimo's Franco's far from colorful internment camp. In a preview of the blank shades of fascist things to come, things like Auschwitz, Birkenau, and Chelmo, and Treblinka, the inscription advised that we, quote, read the Quixote, read it at the concentration camp, as a minute hand of human hours, as a place to discover ideals that justify the craziness of genius to get back control of reason, end quote. And while this advice seemed peculiarly applicable to me after my Muller demolishing luncheon with Raul Ramirez and his masterful application of the ideals of Nazi dentistry, I was so overwhelmed by the museum itself that I set the inscription aside for the moment while I tried to absorb both my tour of the place and a few more inches of my enormous gordita. The surrounding rooms were full of hundreds of paintings and ceramics and prints and sculptures of the dawn in various states of haunted lunacy and flights of the tireless but aging imagination. An old man upright on a broken down horse or sitting by a fire with an immense pile of books or asleep in a bright red sleeping cap in the midst of a splendid dream of everlasting youth, and gleaming but imaginary poetic armaments, or most haunting of all, the portrayal of Quixote in a lunatic asylum, his pale blue eyes staring off into space, his right hand slowly wearing a hole in the wall, and his left on a splendidly bound brown leather book. Nearly 800 images of the artist's search for ideals in an age of unfettered totalitarian power. When I looked at the hand wearing the hole in the wall, I couldn't help but picturing Antonio Gramsci, slowly wasting away in one of Mussolini's prisons, writing the prison notebooks on toilet paper, 3,000 pages worth of detailed drawings of the capitalist mental prisons we've built to confine ourselves, thinking, quote, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, end quote, with his own right hand clawing absently at the wall, leaving only a patch of darkness from the ink on his fingers, and dreaming of a plate of pasta, maybe, or, or a gordita he could hold if he could put down his pen. A gordita. And I, as I mentioned at the start of this show, you were going to hear 
uh, that phrase that uh, Jim mentioned at the very start. You were going to hear optimism of the will again, and there it is. Anyway, you are listening to I-94. This is WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. That was a reading from the book Novel Explosives. It is out now from Zero Gram Press by Jim Gower. Jim is joining us from California on the phone. Jim, uh, we before the break, we were talking, well, we've been talking about a lot of things, but that was a great example to me of the kind of humor that's in the book. And uh, I, I really... That was one of the passages that really lit up with me because uh, you, you, you contrast a guy who's uh, rotting away in Mussolini's prison with uh, 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 the act of eating a delicious gordita, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. Uh, Jim, can you take us through a little bit of, of – we talked about this at the start of the show, but I'd like to get back to it – the humor that's in this book because uh, we've contrasted a little bit with Pynchon, who's a little more slapstick. Yours is a little more dry. There's a little more of an edge to it. But I also think there's an absurdity to it, which is, I find very winning. Yeah, boy, uh, humor's a, a difficult topic, huh? Yeah, it's a tough it's, thing to write. Yeah, it's... Um, <clears throat> I don't think... It's, it's sort of impossible for me to imagine my, for myself writing a novel without humor in it because it's, it seems to me so fundamental to... Our species. I mean, possibly other than dogs, I, I don't know many other forms of wildlife that have a sense of humor. Although I have heard some parrots that seem to have quite a dry wit, but it's um, so. Yeah, it, it was important to me. It's um, it, it's part of my own makeup. Um, it's something that I found in the course oddly enough, of my business career was was really necessary. Um, if you go into a boardroom, I don't mean to take us too far away from the novel, but you go into a boardroom and people are uh, humorless and kind of locked into their own ideas and this um, sort of reality as a group project, as I describe it, uh, in Silicon that, Valley, that's funny. Terms, they call it. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny, Jim. <laughs> that's actually very funny. Yeah, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, they call this breathing your own exhaust. And in any case, uh, one of the things I found after years of sort of humorless pounding on the table about something was that it was far easier to get people to start thinking creatively by sort of puncturing the seriousness with with humor and so i'm i'm prone in board meetings to kind of bursting the the self-enclosed bubble that that people have gotten locked into and breathing their own exhaust so you know how you know what's humor we we'd have to you know go through freud and all these other things i i don't know where that sense of humor comes from it's certainly not something that I had a lot of when I was writing poetry, I would say. Uh, my poetry eventually got very, um, I don't know, serious and even self-serious. And I suppose when I started writing novels, it, part of it was, you know, to remember to have fun. I, I think literature, when we forget that it's, you have to be a little bit tap back into your childhood and and just have fun for it to be creative, at least for me. So I think humor is a, a byproduct of that. Those periods in our youth when a lot of things struck us as just fundamentally absurd. I mean, I grew up in a generation that thought anybody over 30 was, you know, fundamentally crazy and uh so what are, what are yeah. you talking about jim that's still accurate <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> exactly fortunately i'm only 28 so i, I get a pass <laughs> mike i know you wanted to bring something up yeah um, we were talking about um, the humor of the book and <clears throat> one of the things i found reoccurring through um throughout the entire book is is this conversation it sort of has with itself and it, and it, it pokes fun at itself quite a bit <clears throat> we've been talking a little bit about the difficulty of the novel and <clears throat> there are quite a lot of words that I had to look up or 
had to read the sentence again to, to gather its meaning from the context. And one of those words was, was pleonastic. And it's a word that uh, a character named Gomez, he's uh, Raymond and Eugene's boss. Raymond and Eugene are, are gunmen. Um, and can you Shakespeare quoting boss? Don't <laughs> yeah, and and I found that when I looked up that word to be it to be a kind of um, self-referential to the book. Can you talk about the meaning of that word and maybe why you chose to take? 713 pages to, to say what you had to say. Yeah, so for people who haven't looked it up, uh, pleonasm is the use of more words than are necessary to convey meaning. It would be a sort of concise definition. And um, it's it deliberately used in reference to phrases that are useless or cliched or repetitive or whatever. So yeah, in using pleonasm, the book is, in some sense, sort of poking fun at itself. Uh, you know, this sort of vast outpouring of language. And uh, it's also, you know, the book is obviously written at a, a strange angle, maybe even orthogonal to contemporary, most contemporary fiction, I would say, corporate fiction is my favorite term for it, stuff that is put out by the big publishing houses who have to watch the bottom line and make sure that books sell well. Um, most of these, uh, the popular style that's evolved is linear narrative, um, sort of very simple use of sentences, uh, declarative sentence, transitional phrase, declarative sentence, declarative sentence, new paragraph, declarative sentence, new paragraph. And, you know, this kind of sparse minimalism that that fits, you know, worked very well, I think, back when it was uh, first put in use and is really masterful in the hands of somebody like Joy Williams or or many others. Um, Sounds like an indictment of Gordon Lish here. Yeah, well, okay. Lish is the <laughs> hatchet job on Raymond Carver uh-huh. is a whole long topic, but yeah. <laughs> I happen to love Gordon Lish's okay. own work. I'm not so big a fan of what, what he did to Carver's did work. Right, but yeah. all of that said, um, you know, the book is, is obviously a, a sort of overkill of the that style of writing that aims to be i i would call it orwellian prose meaning a a sort of transparent window onto the world the language is very much foregrounded um there's a lot of it and it's it's a kind of deliberate transgression of the norms of contemporary fiction that appear to me often to be written to, uh, you know, the literacy level of a, a high school student. And, uh, you know, that's, I should stay out of that because I'll insult way too many people. But it's, That's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, well it's, it's certainly clear that if you want to sell a lot of books, you better aim for a lower common denominator than I did. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I sold way more of this than I ever expected to, but it's, yeah, you're not going to end up being the top title pushed by Random House if you write this way. So, you know, just a warning to anybody who likes novel explosives, don't write like that. <laughs> well. Jim, I asked you in a, in an email if it was okay if I brought up some some criticism from yeah. from Goodreads, and I, and I wanted to read you this one because it's kind of funny. But it's sort of I feel like a lot of um, a lot of readers take this kind of stance towards fat novels, and the title of this guy's criticism was "The Neophyte's Guide to Yet Another Made to Order Big Fat Brainy Encyclopedic American Novel Part Nine and Counting." How to get how to get five stars for your encyclopedic novel from the herd of independent minds? 
One, make sure your sentence is average half to one page in length. Two, make sure your paragraphs extend to four and a half pages. Three, drop the names of Hegel, Heidegger, Wittgenstein, and or Lacan into the text gratuitously. Four, randomly use polysyllabic words you found in your dictionary, but never encountered or used before. Five, quote liberally from your American physician's desk reference. Mike, can I interrupt you? Yeah. I just want to say that I would bet $100 that this reviewer did not read the book. Well, well, well it's interesting because he, he, he or she made sure they made it long enough to let you know that they did read the entirety of the book. And, oh. and I just lost 100 bucks. Well, wow. thank you. Um, what, I, what I, f I found really discouraging about it was the fact that this person clearly has the capacity to understand some of the themes that are explored in the book, but was found it necessary to be catty about who's the smarter person. Jim also, or yeah. them. I'll, I'll drop another hundred that they're a failed writer. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I just, I, I wonder if you had, had encountered this type of attitude and, um, well, you know, I think it's, it's part of the, contemporary debate that's been going on for the last 10 or 15 years that, you know, we had sort of Jonathan Franson on one side of this and then, a, you know, sort of the defenders of, let's say, more innovative fiction on the other. And, you know, Franson makes a good case uh, against the kind of writing that I'm doing. Oh, Mr. Difficult was his essay. Yeah, right. exactly. So he's referring specifically to William Gaddis. Right, right. And um, while, you know, Gaddis's first book, The Recognitions, is pretty difficult and, you know, it's 1,100 pages long or something, um, I, the, if you guys have read J.R., I think yes, J.R. Yeah. is just, hilarious and it is, finish it. <laughs> you know, not not in any way well it has its difficulties but it's it's not i found a lot of similarities actually between but i finished novel explosives and i couldn't finish jr so. yeah uh, that that's interesting i i won't comment on that but in any <laughs> case you know that that kind of um critique is you know, it's certainly fair. I mean, everyone has a right to their own aesthetic. Um, you know, to think that I sort of deliberately wrote this way to appeal to some audience that he's imagined <laughs> yeah. of kind of pseudo-intellectuals is certainly not what I was doing. I mean, this book took seven years of seven days a week. I mean, literally not a day skipped. Before uh, Getting up at four in the morning, <laughs> writing for at least six hours, and then on top of that, all the research. I mean, I didn't write this book to, uh, you know, try to put myself on the map of pseudo-intellectuals. These are things that, if you actually have read the book with some sympathy, these are things I deeply care about and believe in. And while I like, I obviously have an aesthetic that likes more extravagance in their books. It's, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, calculated. So I, I think the only thing I would disagree with is sort of the tone of that critique. Yeah. Uh, a serious aesthetic yeah. critique of the book could be written along those lines, and, and I would certainly probably agree with it. Uh, that would be fine. I mean, I read a lot of novels that that aren't written this way, and, and they're fine. I think it's the difference between maybe it's lovely to take a hike through rolling countryside, and I have some behind my house. It's also a lot of fun to climb a 500-foot rock face you know, with just a few nuts and bolts and a little rope attached to yourself, and I was a rock climber for a long time. So this is a rock climb. It's not a uh, not. Let uh, me just say this, Jim. Hill. Jim, I'm going to trust you first of all that you think rock climbing's fun. I'm just going to. Yeah. I'll trust you on that. And one. I'm going to say this: you went to the death houses in Juarez to do research. 
This isn't just some like, you know, intellectual fart job. I just made that word up. That was good. That was good. <laughs> um, but like, you know what I mean? And I, I think the book was well, and, you know, we we're talking about the artillery. You know, I was reading. I'm like, how does this dude know this? You know what I mean? And it's like, that's to me is like you researched, you wrote day in and day out. You don't have to like this kind of book. And if you don't like it, put it down. That's why I hate uh, social media criticism sites. That's yeah. why we started this radio show. So I could present a book like Novel Exp- or we, not me could present a book like Novel Explosives to the public that might not have heard about it because stuff like this needs to be read because we're all reading what you call corporate literature, what we call hot garbage. Amen. Amen. (laughs) And with that, we we, uh, actually are running out of time. The one thing about this show is that it flies by. And I do want to leave our listeners with one last clip from Jim Gower's book. Let's give Jim the last word. You're going to be hearing from, again, Jim Gower's book, Odd on Zero Gram Press, Novel Explosives. And, of course, we've been talking to him for the last hour. Jim, thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. It's been a really real pleasure. appreciate it, your insights. And we really, we did really enjoy the book here on the show. Well, We're, I hope I didn't scare the whole audience off. And in any case, it was great talking with you guys. You as thank well. Thank you so much. We're going to be back uh, in two weeks, right? Two weeks, is that right? No, next week. Next, next week. week. <laughs> oh, I, can't even, I can't even keep up with what's going on in this show. But next thing you're going to hear is the final clip from Novel Explosives by Jim Gower. I am Jamie Trecker for Jeremy Kitchen. Michael Sack. We'll see you next week. You're listening to I-94 and WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. So let's just say the bookings came roaring in with upfront cash to solve our little burn problem from third world countries that none of us had heard of. Lesotho, Eritrea, Comoros, Guinea-Bissau, and places like Malawi and Suriname and Timor-Leste. Places from a fifth grade geography quiz where you're supposed to match the country to the name of the continent. Do you know the difference between Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan in terms of which would be most interested in buying UFDMA packet-based downlinks? If the government of Turkmenistan ordered enough power amplifiers to blanket the Black Sands Desert with solar-powered cell phone towers, would you find that a little odd? How much do you actually know about 3GPP long-term evolution? If I told you it used EUTRAN on the network core side of the evolved packet system and EPC on the access side, would you be able to tell me that I had it backwards? Exactly. Me either. Have you ever heard of companies like HTNL, IGO, TOT Corp, and Inforta, as opposed to companies like HNL and Bartos and Cordian and Wish Wireless? I'll give you a hint. Some of these are real and actually deploying WiMAX networks, and some of these are not so real and probably deploying an elaborate smokescreen. If you're sitting in a board meeting and the CEO tells you that they're selling a bunch of power amplifiers through a company named Infocom for WiMAX Systems in Kampala, Uganda, you should probably start feeling pretty good about yourself. If the CEO says new orders have just come in with payment in advance for SFFDMA uplink amplifiers purchased by Velocicom for Paramarimbo Suriname, you might want to call a lawyer who speaks a little Dutch and knows a fair amount about the bauxite industry like how to turn bauxite into an aluminum explosive and hide most of Suriname under a dense cloud of smoke, because you yourself will have no way of knowing whether these orders are real or not. Real? How can they not be real if somebody actually paid for them? What could be more real than cash up front? is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Jim Gower's book, Novel Explosives, out now from Zero Gram. The episode originally aired on April 15th, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. 